Today on Pilot's Discretion, we're joined by Greg Bowles from Joby Aviation. He tells us how electric propulsion is changing aviation, when you'll see vertical takeoff and landing aircraft in your neighborhood, and what to expect from new certification rules. Pilot's Discretion starts right now. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, John Zimmerman of Sporties. A reminder to visit sporties.com slash podcast for all of today's show links and for access to every episode of Pilot's Discretion. You can also email us at podcast at sporties.com. Today on the show, I'm joined by Greg Bowles. He is the head of government affairs at Joby Aviation, one of the hottest startups in the world of advanced air mobility, or AAM, which means he's on the front line of the next generation of electric aircraft. But Greg is also a longtime pilot, and he spent over a decade at the General Aviation Manufacturers Association, where he led the industry-wide effort to reform Part 23 certification standards. He even worked at Cessna many years ago, so he is hardly a newcomer to the world of GA. Greg, welcome to Pilot's Discretion. Thank you so much, John. I am excited to, uh, to talk through some of the subjects I love. Let me start by promising not to utter the phrase flying car on this podcast, because I think that's a loaded term and also a bad description of what Joby is doing. But suffice it to say, there have been many other vertical takeoff and landing aircraft over the years, many other plans, going back to gyrocopters in the 1930s. So why do you think this time is different? We've all looked at those those aircraft and, and been excited about the idea of vertical takeoff and landing that has the speed and, and efficiency of traditional airplanes. It's been coming for a long time, but the age of electric aircraft and the age of electrification is really critical here to enable doing these in smart, efficient ways. Uh, mechanical cross-links, the losses, the, uh, the control methodologies for mechanical systems um, just make it difficult to solve all that together. And so uh, for the better part of the last decade, Joby has been working to kind of build that core technology. So we've stood up capabilities in building really special aviation grade motors, uh, batteries, and high power electronics. And that is really some of the, the really important piece uh, necessary to do this well. And that, also, that really needs to be highly integrated and, and kind of a thoughtful design that uses each of those to their best abilities for reliability, redundancy, and efficiency. And so, so that is really what's happened is we're now, we are living in the age of electric airplanes, right? We saw it coming for the last decade. I think um, some of the exciting things that happened in the public realm with Pipistrel and other early designs uh, really bore born this out. And now... We are into the mid to early days of really, really exciting next 50 years. One of the things I think is impressive about Joby that a lot of people who don't watch it closely maybe don't realize uh, is the, the performance here. Recently, you've made test flights as far as 150 miles and as fast as 175 knots. So tell us about that and why that's important versus just a traditional, uh, maybe a shorter range, slower or even helicopter model. Electric brings to the table a couple of really important pieces. It brings to the table the ability to be very, very reliable and redundant. Um, and, and it allows us to get through FA safety hurdles in a really um, important way. It brings to the table the ability to be really quiet, and hopefully we can get into that in a little bit as well. And then it brings to the table the ability to mix propulsion and control. And as we do that, we can start to see ways to operate vertically so we can operate out of infrastructure like traditional helipads. 
that are much more constrained. And then we can also operate in and out of conventional runways and airports. And getting those speeds on the wing, the speed and efficiency of getting on the wing is really important. And so because electric is enables these kinds of control and propulsion mixes, but we all know that battery capacity is is growing from infancy to where it is now that we have to uh, be really smart in how we use that energy. And so that efficient flight on the wing lets us go really, really far. And so 150 miles plus a 30 minute reserve is, is an awesome ability. The core mo- mission for Joby is, is a much shorter median mission, somewhere in the 25 mile range. So having the ability to go as far as we can really lets us continue to fly through the day, take, tr- take on electricity as we pick up passengers or drop off passengers. And, and I think, you know, what's important to start in your mental model here, this is a piloted airplane. So this is not a drone. This is not something that's far-fetched. This is a piloted electric airplane that can also take off and land vertically. There's a lot of really cool things, but for the pilots, like jumping in and understanding how to fly this and walking away thinking like, that's something I want to do uh, is really worthwhile. You mentioned the FAA, which is obviously a huge part of certifying or launching any new aircraft. And I found it interesting on your website, you say that Joby is an aircraft designed to be certified, which is probably something you couldn't say about some other crazy uh, concepts you've seen out there. So tell me what that means, an aircraft designed to be certified. We're going to probably have a chance to talk a little more about the modern Part 23 but Part 23 rules are what we use to certify traditional light general aviation airplanes, airplanes up to 19 passengers or 19,000 pounds. So that's the rules the FAA uses to certify those. And so at Joby, we built an aircraft that was designed to meet the rules within that segment. And now it does more than just act like an airplane, right? We can perform vertically and we're electric and we have higher degrees of redundancy. And the way the pilot controls this aircraft is a little bit uh, more straightforward and and um, it's envelope protected all the time with fly by wire, for example. And so those are new features and the FA doesn't have rules for some of those features. So what they did is they took part 23 rules and they added special conditions on top. And so those special conditions address those additional features. And then typically what the FA will do is over time, if they start to see a whole number of aircraft utilizing the same special conditions, then they'll update the rules and add them on as regular rules. But they don't do that right off the bat until they start to see some some standardization. You mentioned the controls. So for me as a helicopter pilot, I assume I'm not going to hop in a Joby and see a collective and a cyclic and traditional uh, controls like that. So what does the pilot see when they sit in the Joby ready to take off? We designate our, our primary controls, the left hand and the right hand inceptor. These are wonderful titles that make us all thrilled to get going. But, um, but joking aside, the way that we fly the aircraft is very, very airplane-like. So your left hand is controlling speed. And so all the time, unlike traditional tilt rotors or traditional Harrier or, or other kinds of classic VTOL aircraft, the pilot's always flying this aircraft as an airplane. You don't have to make a mental change. So I guess I'll give you a parallel here. In a Harrier, your left hand is controlling a throttle when you're on the wing. And then as you transition to a hover, you're tilting the nozzles with that hand. And then your power up and down becomes the vertical control. And earlier, before you were, when you were on the wing, that vertical control was in your right hand. And, and now that becomes a forward and back control. And so, so that mental switch is what's happened in classic VTOL. The F-35B is the first aircraft of like significant record. It, it, it had a heritage in what they call the 
Vlock Harrier program, which then the X-35 developed into the F-35B controls. This is called Unified, and that's the idea of always controlling. One hand will always be up, down, left, right. The other hand will always be speed. So that's the methodology we've brought into the Joby aircraft. So your left hand is always going to be fast, slow. Your right hand is always going to be up, down, left, right. Uh, and so that really simplifies the task. And interestingly, um, you know, I, I've learned to fly helicopters to make sure that I have like a wide perspective and it's a really fun thing to do. Um, I, I think I'm probably still a classic airplane guy, but uh, I do like to fly helicopters when I can. This aircraft, when you pull back on that right inceptor, you go straight up in the air. And if you let go, you sit in the air point in space, right? So the aircraft's always automatically stabilized. And that happens through all failure modes. So if you have multiple failures, the aircraft still flies the same way. You don't have to resort to like a basic kind of flight skills, um, which is probably not a great thing to have to do in failures. Going back to basic modes that you were taught once upon a time is probably not the ideal situation. So it's a really awesome opportunity to be able to always have these kind of controls um, in front of you. We've talked about the aircraft a little bit. How about the landing sites? Because that's obviously a key part of delivering, you know, vertical flight and convenient transportation, especially around cities. So what's the plan to get passengers close to their destination? In the early days, you know, the, the U.S. is a really interesting place. Um, we are all very, very fortunate to fly here. I've had a chance to live in other parts of the world and fly. And the U.S. airport infrastructure that was built out of World War II is amazing. So over 6,000 public use airports that were built across the U.S. And I think we still have around 5,080 of them uh, in, in service. Um, today as pilots, what we see all the time is municipalities and cities thinking about closing down those airports. We see, uh, use kind of dwindling. Um, this is a really amazing chance to revitalize that infrastructure and start to use it. So first of all, most people that aren't pilots or in aviation, like all the listeners, I'm sure don't realize that those local airports exist, right? They're familiar with the OEP 35, the big 35 airports in the country, but all these like little gems are going to come back to heavy use. So think how close those, that, that initial infrastructure is to everyone's house. That's awesome. When we're getting into this environment of revitalizing this and this new um, advanced aviation coming online, how in the world can you think about closing down aviation infrastructure when you're going into a world where we need more of it, right? So that puts us in a really strong position to grow more infrastructure. And we haven't even touched on the heliports yet, right? So heliports are also fantastic sites to land vertically. Uh, at Joby, we've designed our aircraft to perform in and out of uh, helipads. Clearly, we can land conventionally on runways as well, uh, or or like helicopters over at airports and then on movement areas or the taxiways or, or designated locations. And then, you know, there's this idea that over time, people are going to say, well, I'm not so lucky to live right by a GA airport, or I'm not so lucky to have a heliport because helicopters have traditionally not been something servicing my area. There's an opportunity now for for this infrastructure to grow. And we think that people are, are going to really start to take use of aviation in a much broader way and start to demand like, hey, I would really like a piece of aviation infrastructure near my house too, and to get connected to this amazing transportation network. That's a really positive thing for all of us. It adds to the air-mindedness of the population at large, which means that everything that a lot of your listeners have been doing for a long time becomes more successful and more interesting. Yeah, it'd be great news indeed if the local GA airport got a new lease on life with with some of this. A part of that that inevitably comes into play is noise, though. There's so many airports around the U.S. that struggle with communities that uh, don't like the noise created by aircraft flying over. But that's something, as I understand it, Joby's really looked at. I was surprised to read how quiet the Joby is. And in fact, you've got some great videos up showing the aircraft flying over. So 
tell me about the goal there and, and what you hope to achieve with Joby in terms of noise. Well, when people look at aviation, you know, one of the complaints is typically it's too loud, especially people that live right around uh, airports or heliports. And so we know that if we really want to grow aviation infrastructure in places that it doesn't exist, we need to be very conscientious of noise. Electric offers us some really novel opportunities. If you think about a Tesla, for example, when you touch the gas pedal, you have almost instant acceleration, right? You're back in your seat right away. You don't have to rev the engine up. So electric motors can make a lot of torque at really low RPM. And so that opportunity lets the the aircraft uh, fly in really, really quiet ways if you start from the beginning that way. Um, at Joby, we, we built our aircraft on the foundation of being very, very quiet. That was one of the core principles that we, we chose uh, in addition to safety and accessibility. And so... So being able to be really, really quiet not only assures that we can operate in and out of today's infrastructure for a long, long time, but it allows us to start to look at these opportunities for new infrastructure. Uh, there's another piece of noise that's really important to think about. And that's, so one piece is the real noise. Like how loud is that aircraft? And I'm really excited. Like every time someone has a chance to see the Joby aircraft fly, that's kind of a religious moment. People say, holy, I, I certainly did. Right. I ended up joining the company. So you see this aircraft fly and say, holy cow, I've never seen something this size fly so silently right in front of me this close. Right. And, and it's amazing. So that's the real noise issue. But then there's a perceived noise issue. And that's a different side of the coin. That's that's folks that don't have that air mind discussed people that aren't part of aviation necessarily. And they they see an aircraft or notice it and they feel like it's not something that's part of their world. Right? That's maybe VIP transport, or it's something that I don't get to do. And so I'm going to complain about it. And I'm not happy about that. And, and so that's another really important thing to go after. Right, By making aviation more accessible, more cost-effective, something that we all do and bringing more value to us, it actually helps both sides of the equation. So it's absolutely critical to be as quiet as possible, but it's also really important to, uh, to be conscientious of the other side and make sure that aviation becomes uh, more usable for everybody. You mentioned earlier the effect on airports potentially with some of these aircraft. I'm wondering if there are any other sort of trickle-down benefits from this boom in advanced air mobility and electric aircraft for a typical general aviation pilot and just electric in general. Do you think there's going to be some benefits from all the investment and all the technological advances with batteries and electric motors that might make their way to the sport flying part of the world? When I was a young guy in college, I was an aerospace engineer. And I really enjoyed learning about the work that had been done in the 1950s and 1960s to, you know, it was amazing work that was done to, to create a thriving aviation industry where kind of the U.S. really led the space for a long, long time. And we've kind of lived through the time of the early GA into the jet age. And I had a professor in college who told me that um, everything that was interesting has been done now. And what we'll all be doing is like focusing on a flap track or a structural rib, like that'll be your career. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is miserable. Like that's not going to be my career. And so what I can say is I am so excited that my particular professor was wrong and we are living like at this new era of aviation. So if we look at the early days of aviation that evolved in the jet age, and now we're in the electric age of aircraft, the electric age of aircraft isn't a replacement for the jet age. It isn't a replacement for the early days, right? This is another outgrowth, just like those others were. And it is just full of opportunities. 
there are so many things that are enabled by electric propulsion. I mentioned the mixing of flight controls and propulsion. That's really exciting. The the noise, the reliability. I mean, could you imagine if you had motors that had uh, just one moving part, right? So a bearing is typically the moving part in an electric motor compared to our, our wonderful piston engines from the 1940s. Um, and so, so, you know, these kind of things are absolutely capturing young people. You know, we hear from a lot of young people who love aviation, but get really excited about what's what's on the horizon here. So I want to put you on the spot. If we fast forward 20 years and the electric aviation boom hasn't happened, or at least it's underwhelmed, why will that be? What will we have gotten wrong as an industry? So on the global front, there's absolutely no question the electric age will grow, right? The, the power and utility of batteries has grown by five to um, three to five percent every year for the last 20 years, according to Argonne National Labs, our, our DOE lab for battery research in the US. We're seeing the capabilities are, are clearly here now. The question is, do we succeed in the US in putting it to use? And do we succeed in growing our aviation infrastructure and staying ahead and leading aviation? Or does the US not lead aviation in the next century? And I am very, very bullish, and I believe the US will be extremely successful. It's clearly a worldwide race. And there are some awesome companies around the world in this space. The outgrowth is going to happen in so many directions. Uh, it's hard to theorize what things will look like in 15 or 20 years. But um, the foundation upon which we're building all of that is really firm. Greg, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with some more questions. An emergency is no time for instruction manuals or complicated adapter cables. That's why the pilots at Sporties designed the PJ2Com radio, the only radio with built-in aviation headset jacks. In an emergency, you can plug right in and stay focused on flying. The PJ2, winner of both Aviation Consumer's Gear of the Year and Flying Magazine's Editor's Choice Award, is available for just $229. Visit sporties.com slash PJ2 to order. Now, back to pilot's discretion. Greg, before you got to Joby, you have worked for many years on light aircraft certification, including a lot of work on the Part 23 reform that really got going about a decade ago. The next big idea from the FAA is this mosaic program, the modernization of special airworthiness certification. I know you maybe don't work on that day-to-day -day anymore, but as an expert in the certification world, what's your take on that program? So, you know, that program really began as a way to help the unmanned aircraft or drones have uh, a known space for the certification of drones in a way that wasn't necessarily the full step to Part 23. It was kind of a middle ground, right? That's what it was looked at initially. And then the FAA realized that they have a lot of a patchwork in the experimental aviation realm. I've had a chance to be part of a kit build in my life. And if you look at some of the ins and outs of kit built aircraft and selling those kit built aircraft, um, there are kind of rules that the FAA would like to tighten up with respect to LSA. So light sport aircraft today, the rules don't allow electric propulsion. They are kind of anemic in the weight of light sport aircraft. And so Mosaic is a modernization of special, let me see if I say this right, modernization of special issuance airworthiness certificates or something close to that. Um, definitely an acronym expert helped with that. And so as that rule comes through, I think the hope would be that it, it aids in energizing the lighter segments of aviation again. 
that is going to, we talked a minute ago about the importance of the U.S. leading in aviation and in this space. We're really, really set to grow in strong economic ways in the U.S. in aviation. Um, and we're going to need a young, excited workforce. So, you know, these light segments, that's how you attract folks like that. And and, and that's certainly how you keep um, older people like me engaged too. Over time, I would love to be able to, to stay in aviation for a long, long time. And so I think these light segments are what keep that really strong thought leadership going in aviation across the board. Um, and so it's exciting to see where the FA will go with that. I don't have inside scoop as to knowing when it's going to come or where, but I think there are some there are some good things in it. And I know a big part of this whole concept is consensus standards. So for those of us who don't understand the lingo as much, what's the value of consensus standards versus maybe the old model of how we certify airplanes? The idea of using consensus standards has been around for a long, long time, but it's been in patchwork. So if you look, for example, at the way we certify avionics, they've been certified against consensus standards for a long, long time. RTCA, ASTM, SAE, um, EuroK, uh, AAAE, AIA. I don't want to forget any. I apologize if I've forgotten some of the awesome standards bodies out there. Um, but, but the idea of bringing together a group of experts, including regulators, and talking through the state of the art, what's the right approach, and documenting that really helps the industry to kind of set a baseline and keep moving forward. And then regulators like the FAA, they'll take those standards and they'll allow some flexibility, right? So they say, like, here's the core standard your product probably has a little bit of difference. And so we'll work in those differences, but the core work has now been done and, and standardized. Um, and so, so standards really allow an industry to move, move forward in a really efficient way. Um, now, one of the things that's important is that those standards be globally recognized. And we're starting to see more and more key regulators around the world do that, like use common standards uh, around the world so that aviation can be successful all over. I've been honored to be able to like, chair standards bodies and and i even was had the honor of being on the astm board of directors the last um the last two years um and so i think um standards are are absolutely critical for for us in aviation the fa has done a really good job of leaning in and and taking advantage of that broad knowledge group and then what's interesting as well so just as the standards enable these things at the end of the day, the FAA has total control of safety, right? So the FAA can say, I do accept that standard, I like it, or we don't think that standard meets the, the proper requirements, and then they don't invoke it. So it's a it's a really um, efficient, fast way to develop state-of-the-art that still leaves the FAA in strong control. All right, I want to go back to your early career when you were at Cessna, and as I understand it, you worked on the citation line of business jets which I think is an underappreciated miracle of how efficient and safe and reliable all these aircraft are, not just Cessna, but the whole category of, of business jets. So what's something about the design of a jet that the typical owner doesn't appreciate? Is there something in testing and system engineering certification? What's something that's really, really hard that the average owner doesn't appreciate? I really learned a lot of respect for the engineers who had come before me in my early days at Cessna working on the CJ2 and the CJ3 as they went from advanced programs into certification and production. I can remember early on thinking I was outsmarting like I knew something more and I was going to I was going to modify something that had been very successful on previous Citation 500 models that had kind of been heritage and saying like, we just need to change that gap by one-tenth of an inch uh, and everything's gonna be wonderful. And then in the flight test, realizing that 
you know, the intentional turbulence I caused allowed uh, a system to flow better. But at the same time, it started mixing air in an area that caused another problem, right? And I said, wow, it was in the perfect place. And so I had this opportunity to really kind of, just as sometimes I need to not speak before I think, I sometimes need to not engineer before I fully think, right? And that was a really important lesson from, from my early days at Cessna. But something else that I, w I learned at Cessna that was really fundamental for me over the next like 20 years has been in the early days before we modernized Part 23, the effort and cost to certify a Part 23 jet wasn't that different than the effort and cost to certify a light airplane. And when we looked at the regulations, the way that they applied didn't look at the the flexibility of complexity of the systems. It didn't look at the at the at the the risk of uh, structural design across the spectrum of aircraft. And so, modernizing Part Twenty Three to leverage, as you kind of mentioned, the industry standards and to lay out a tailored approach did a few things. It created an environment for light aviation to be really successful in the U.S. again. And it unleashed the ability to really start to innovate. And, and so the, this rule change in the early days of Cessna, there's a pretty strong line there towards where we are today with electric propulsion. And the confluence of all these things coming together, the maturation of electric propulsion and, and electric motors, the modernization of these regulations, and a public interest in new ways to, to move around, we are like really living in pretty amazing times. I I feel like amazingly fortunate to have been able to witness all that. And I'm kind of really excited for the next 20 years. Okay, Greg, at the end of each one of these episodes, we do a segment we call ready to copy. So I'll throw out some topics and you give me your quick answer. Are you ready to copy? All right. Ready to copy. You've flown both airplanes and helicopters. So I'm not going to let you call Joby on this one. Which one is more fun, airplanes or helicopters? If I want to get somewhere, I love to fly in an airplane. If I just want to go out and have fun, I want to hover around on the grass out at Frederick and uh, just have a great time. A very diplomatic answer. Which type of pilot do you think will adapt to flying Joby easier? Is this a helicopter pilot's aircraft or an airplane pilot's aircraft? So it's an interesting question because, um, you know, the flight controls are really built for airplane pilots to, to feel like they're flying an airplane. And so it's a really natural transition for airplane pilots. But most of the helicopter folks who have come in have very, very quickly um, kind of adapted to, to this kind of control. Uh, I think you feel a little lazy as a helicopter pilot when you're flying this aircraft because it's, it's a little easy. You're not, um, you're not having to, to keep your hands and feet um, dancing. But interestingly as well, the first thought that goes to most folks' mind after they do their own transfer of skills is, wow, this is so simple, non-aviation people could fly, probably fly it pretty well. So uh, it's, it's, an, it's, it's a really awesome chance. I, I hope we have more chances to let folks um, fly our simulators in the coming year. I, I think um, we're excited to do that. Will I ever be able to buy a Joby for my own personal use, or is it going to be fleet only? Our plans are to be the commercial operator under a Part 135 of these aircraft, um, Part 135 uh, commercial service. We are going to um, be able to put these aircraft into really high utilization, which is part of um, an important way to keep these cost effective and efficient. Uh, so that is the plan going forward. I'm going to make you make some predictions for me here, or at least wild guesses. What year will I see an electric Cub or Cub-like sport aircraft that I can buy? 
I think that we are seeing, uh, we're already seeing aircraft like Pipistrol um, in that space. Uh, I would be shocked if there aren't a range of opportunities for you in the next two or three years uh, to have an electric airplane like that. How much fun would a Super Cub with an electric motor be? So the amount of torque is pretty exciting uh, and the amount of power you can create during the climb. But the other really amazing thing is that that power doesn't fade with altitude. So being able to get up to higher altitudes and, and have the available speed that you want to, to move is, is pretty awesome. And then another really interesting thing is that you can potentially regen. So you can potentially regenerate energy on the way back down. So imagine the day when you can go up to like 10,000 feet in your electric cub and power starts running a little low and you just come on downhill to your airport and you land with like a half tank again. What year will we see the first regularly scheduled pilotless airline flight? It's, a, it's an awesome question. I kind of think through this and I think the challenges are not necessarily regular. They're certainly not technological. The challenges are maybe lightly regulatory, but they're not many left. Um, and then the question is like acceptance, like what is the human acceptance of this idea of me flying on something without a pilot? Um, I will say this, uh, I have a 10 year old son who goes flying with me a lot. When we jump on an airliner, I think the last thing he's thinking about is those pilots up front. So I think when his generation gets a little older, that third concern probably wanes pretty well. What should we call aircraft like Joby? I've heard UAM, AAM, flying cars, probably a dozen other ideas. What's the right moniker for a electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft like Joby. Formally, the FAA is going to refer to this as an electric airplane, a piloted electric airplane that can take off and land vertically. Uh, I think, I think eVTOL seems to be sticking. That, that seems to be the term that's, that's catching on. I never think we can control the world in such a way as to determine. Um, I am with you in saying that we should try to say these are not flying cars, but you know, when it comes to the black box, we didn't win that battle. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> the black box is still orange, right? <laughs> That's right. Our last question on pilot's discretion, Greg, is always the same. You have one final flight and we want to know what are you flying and where are you going? So I am flying a Catalina seaplane off into the sunset and I'm headed to some tropical island where I'm going to hang out until I exhaust the, the fuel and, and can spend the rest of my time in a, in a hammock out there. That is an excellent answer, and I'd like to join you on that flight. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, thanks for being on the podcast. Awesome, John. That was fun. Thanks for listening to Pilot's Discretion, brought to you by Sporty's Pilot Shop, training and equipping pilots worldwide for over 60 years. For more episodes and links to additional information, visit sporties.com slash podcast. And if you have comments or guest ideas, email podcast at sporties.com. I'm John Zimmerman. We'll see you next time on Pilot's Discretion. <laughs>